Well, thank you very much. Um, I will try and uh, minimise the amount of dry things that are in here so that you don't get too bored. Um, very briefly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and give you an overview of what the current regulatory system is. So your basic set of procedures that you need to go through, the controls that we've got. And then I'm going to move on to have a look at some of the issues that we've currently got with the regulation in the UK. All right, so we've heard very briefly in terms of the concerns surrounding fracking or shale gas exploration, Concerns tend to focus around issues of seismicity, so earth tremors, water contamination, the volume of water that is used in the process, impact on air quality both locally and globally in terms of climate change, and the local impact, so your noise, your traffic, and other impacts on areas that are being developed. Now, just for a bit of context, obviously law and regulation doesn't work in a vacuum. It's working in a political and a social context. Now, if anyone has opened a newspaper, you will have seen some very polarised articles on fracking. So they will either have been very for fracking or they will either have been very against fracking. So I think it's just useful to have a look at um, some of these statistics. So these studies, the first one is by the University of Nottingham, um, and it's been a study that's conducted periodically from July 2013 through to September 2015 monitoring whether the public are for or against shale gas. So um, it's a very crude estimate, but it's giving you quite, quite valuable data. What it's showing is that there is actually a drop in support and there has been an increase in opposition. But what you'll notice is that there is a relatively even split. All right? So there isn't a vast majority against fracking over the UK population. This second um, statistic comes from DEC's public attitude tracker. So again, it's been monitoring attitudes over a period of time. And really interestingly, what it shows is that although you do have this split with people who are for and against, actually you've got quite a big bulk of people who are sitting in the middle who don't have an opinion either way. So they're not for and they're not against. So that's kind of your public, your social context at the moment. In terms of your politics, it is no secret that the coalition government and the current Conservative government are real fans of shale gas. All right? So this is a statement from David Cameron in which he said, we are going all out for shale gas. Okay, so this isn't a hidden agenda. Um, it's very clear that shale gas in the UK has a lot of political support. Now, in terms of thinking about why regulation is so important, um, so these have already been mentioned, the Public Health England document which looked at impacts on health from shale gas and your Royal Society report which looked more at environmental risks of fracking. Both of them came to the tentative conclusion that fracking could be done in the UK and it could be done safely provided that there was good regulation, a robust regulatory system in place. Now the problem with that was that they based their, their premise was that there must be a robust regulatory system but nobody then went on to ask well, is the current system robust? All right, so at the moment, what we've got is we've got a broad base of controls that are really well developed. Okay, so they come from the conventional oil and gas sector. So there's a lot of legislation. Um, it's been in use for a number of years, and there is a lot of experience. Some of the problems that you'll see when we have a look at it in a little bit is that where you take regulation that governs one industry or technology, and transpose it over onto another industry that is using slightly different techniques, although you've got a really good broad base of controls, what you will find is that sometimes you get small gaps or uncertainties as to how the regulation applies um, and whether it applies in the first place. So very broadly, uh, what you've got in terms of regulation here is you start off with a licensing process. So 
I'm not sure if you can really see it because they're very small. Um, but the country is split up into blocks. Those blocks are uh, exploration and development license areas, and they are then um, tendered off in licensing rounds. So an exploration company will obtain a license for an area. Now, even if it has a license for an area, it doesn't mean that it's going to explore all over that area. It just means that it can. Once it has that license, what it will do is it will identify a site which it wants to develop. And at that point, that's where your planning regulation kicks in. So once they've identified a site that they want to develop, they'll put in a planning application. So this is decided by what is called your local mineral authority. It, normally, it's your local county council. All right. So your county council at the moment is making decisions as to whether or not planning permission should be granted. When they are considering the application, they have to have regards to government energy policy. And government energy policy says that we need energy from a variety of sources, and those sources include onshore oil and gas. Now, in terms of environmental and health impacts at this point, given that a lot of county councils won't necessarily be that familiar with dealing with oil and gas applications, you've got your environment agency as a statutory consultee um, who will be consulted about the application and have an input at that point. It's worth noting, however, that there have been some changes to the planning system. So in September last year, in a bid to try and speed up the process, so I don't know whether you're aware, but prior to September, there had been a lot of quite long, drawn-out processes for planning that were leading to quite a lot of frustration. So this new guidance says that if a local authority does not make a decision within 16 weeks, it will be classed as underperforming. Now, if it's classed as underperforming, what that means is the Secretary of State can then decide to make the decisions on the Council's behalf. We've also now got this new power which says that the Secretary of State can decide on all appeals that relate to onshore oil and gas exploration. Now, this is going to be of importance and possibly significant importance um, dependent on the outcome of an appeal for planning permission in Lancashire. So there are two planning appeals or two planning permissions that were refused by Lancashire County Council and they're currently being appealed. So we are waiting on the outcome of those. If the refusal is overturned, it's potentially going to be very influential to other county councils in deciding on whether or not they are going to allow planning permission. Um, so particularly given the fact that Lancashire County Council are estimated to have spent something in the region of £100,000 defending their decision at, at the planning appeal. Some of the other issues you see at the planning level is that for a planning authority, because they are not regulate environmental regulatory experts, they have to assume that all other regulation is working effectively. All right, so you know, there is logic to that in that the planning uh, committee cannot be expected to second guess what the regu environmental regulators are going to do. Um, but when we come back to having a look at some of the issues in the regulation, you can see why that assumption might be problematic <coughs> in certain cases. The second issue that's often flagged is that when a council is deciding on whether to grant planning permission, they're looking at whether to grant planning permission for an exploration site. So what that means is when they're assessing the impacts and the risks, they're looking at that small-scale exploration site. They are not permitted to consider the fact that that exploration site might potentially lead to a production site. So again, there is logic in that because there will not necessarily be a production site um, at every exploration site. However, it leads you to this situation where you've got quite a segmented picture um, in assessing the impacts. Oh dear. <laughs>
The other issue in relation to planning that crops up is remediation of the sites. So generally what will happen is the planning authority will use something called a section 106 agreement, which means that the operator will be under a duty to restore the site after they leave. However, given that a lot of the companies are relatively small, the exploration companies we're currently dealing with, there is actually a residual um, requirement that if an operator defaults, the landowner will be required to restore the site. So, so the, the, it may fall back, the duty may fall back on the landowner. There are proposals to put in some kind of a fund to try and avoid this, but at the moment that's not actually been implemented. I'll keep going just in case it pops back up. Um, in terms of being a member of the public, if you're living in an area that is going to be affected by this, at the planning stage, essentially what you can do is you can lodge your objection, you can send a letter of support, and you can request to speak at your planning committee. However, in doing that, you are only able to speak or comment on material considerations. So those are things like the local impact, um, the estimation, arguments that the estimation of gas produced. D don't, don't worry too much, it's, I, I can live without it. <laughs> uh, estimation that, of the gas has been overrated or that it's gonna have significant local impacts. Things like my house is going to be devalued um, and I don't want to look at this are not necessarily going to be considered material considerations. So you are limited on what you can use at the planning stage. Once you've got through the planning stage, in terms of your next set of controls, you've got a really broad range of EU and then transposed into UK law that govern this area. So as I said, we're using uh, regulation from the conventional oil and gas sector. In terms of drilling, very briefly, you need to get consent to drill a well. So the health and safety executive have got to be happy with your design. You've got to get an independent well examination done. And you now also need to notify the British Geological Society. So the British Geological Society are involved in collecting or attempting to collect quite a lot of baseline data um, in areas where they think there might be exploration. So Lancashire, uh, Northern East Yorkshire. You also need to get an environmental permit. So in order to govern your activities at the site, you apply to the Environment Agency for a permit. Now, up until quite recently, this was a bespoke process. So it was assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. And it was quite time consuming because there was a requirement that you consult the public. So there was a public consultation process. What we've seen is the introduction of a new standard rules permit, which is much quicker, it doesn't require public consultation. So it's essentially a standard permit for operations. Now in terms of what a permit actually does, the way they tend to work, and this is normal for any kind of industry, is your permit will set an objective and it is then up to your operator how they meet that objective. So it's, it's essentially a case of internal uh, management systems in meeting the objective of the permit. Now once you've done all that and you've drilled your well, if you're going to hydraulically fracture that well, you've got to apply for an additional consent. So this is a consent to hydraulically fracture. All right. Under the Infrastructure Act, you now will not get a consent to hydraulically fracture unless you've monitored the methane in groundwater for at least 12 months. All right. So this is quite a significant change, and I'll come back to it when I highlight some of the issues that we have seen. Um, but this is quite an important change under the Infrastructure Act. It's also brought in uh, these excluded areas for fracking. So this is primarily to ensure that water that's used for food production or 
um, for drinking water is not affected. So you are unable to drill at a depth of less than 1,200 metres below aquifers that are being used for those purposes. And you also can't drill under your national parks, your areas of outstanding natural beauty. However, in relation to your national parks, what you may see is some drilling subsurface. So what it means is the surface site cannot be located in the national park. But given that these uh, wells can drill out horizontally for several miles, you may still have areas where it does go under a national park or certain areas. It is possible. Um, but broadly speaking, that's brought in to try and protect these areas that were really kind of high level concern for people in relation to fracking. The other thing that the Infrastructure Act has done is it has removed something called subsurface trespass. All right? So prior to the Infrastructure Act, all operators technically needed the consent of every person underneath whose land they were drilling. Now, given that your wells go out for several miles, that's quite problematic because you've got to get everybody's consent. If you don't have their consent, you're technically committing a subsurface trespass and you will be liable for it. Now, this led to a relatively uh, widespread campaign by Greenpeace called the Wrong Move campaign, where they encourage people to sign up and say, I do not permit fracking underneath my land. Um, and essentially what that was trying to do was block off areas so that these radial wells um, weren't viable for operators. Now, as it's not, uh, so now that subsurface trespass has been removed, that isn't an option. So your landowner can no longer do that to try and prevent drilling. Okay, so that's essentially a, a very brief overview of your uh, regulatory system. Um, if anyone's got any questions, I'm happy to answer bits on more detail. Um, in terms of thinking about the uncertainty we've got, so one of the things that we have seen with controls and changes in the legislation is that the UK government has insisted that the current system is adequate. The current system does not need changing. So what we've seen in the changes is a reactive response. So the earth tremors in Lancashire are quite a good example of this. So prior to the earth tremors, there were no controls for seismic activity because under conventional oil and gas uh, legislation, there were no controls. That legislation was considered adequate. All of a sudden, we get these small tremors up in Lancashire. Um, so the government says, right, let's put a ban on fracking for a little bit and we'll design some controls to address seismic activity. All right, so that's great that we now have the controls, but the way in which it came about required that the damage materialised before those controls were put in place. There has also been some concern over the way that fracking is defined under the Infrastructure Act. So it's defined in terms of the volume of water that is going to be used in the process. Now, if for some reason that volume of water is not used, technically what will be occurring will not be fracking, which means that it will not necessarily fall under some of the additional um, <coughs> legislative requirements and controls. On top of that, there are some gaps in the existing broad base of controls that we've got. And these stem from uncertainty more than anything about how they apply. So, for example, uh, in relation to water abstraction, so quite a large volume of wa water is used in shale gas activities. Often this is abstracted from aquifers. The Environment Agency will limit how much water um, a company can abstract. At the moment, what we're tending to see is companies sourcing their water from utilities providers. What that means is it's no longer an issue of legislation or regulation, it's an issue of utility provider policy as to how they prioritise their water supply. 
This second one um, is a very long and complicated set of chemicals regulation. Very broadly, what it requires is, if you are using any chemical in a new way, so in a new process, you have to submit a dossier. So this is an EU bit of legislation. Now, back in 2013, fracking had taken place in various areas in Europe. They investigated all the dossiers that they'd received, and none of them made any reference to the fact that the chemical had been used in the fracking process. So there was general failure to comply with the REACH regulation, and this was flagged up by the EU Commission. Problem is that even if you do comply with it, you have to select a category that describes how you are using this chemical. And at the moment, there is no category that adequately or very specifically describes the way in which the chemical is being used in the fracking process. So what that means is your exposure scenarios and your risk management processes might not quite be aligned to the way in which you are actually using that chemical. Waste is another big one. So we have these documents called BAT and BREATH. All right? So BAT is essentially best available techniques and BREATH is the reference document. So what it does is it collates your best available techniques and gives you guidance on how you should be operating, how you should be using equipment. Now, at the moment, we do not have any of those documents for the treatment of waste from hydraulic fracturing operations. However, there is a current proposal going through the EU Commission to introduce a breath for shale gas operations. Um, unfortunately, final documents not expected until May 2018, so dependent on later this month, may or may not still be relevant to us. One of the other issues is that, oh, it's disappeared again. <laughs> is that under the, we have quite a comprehensive waste um, framework directive, so the mining waste directive, and it gives great guidance or great requirements on how you are to deal with waste. At the moment, what's not clear is whether when you inject fracturing fluid underground, not all of it will return, so some of it will remain underground. And it's not clear if that fluid that remains underground will be classed as waste whilst the site is still active. So the requirements to deal with it in certain ways under the waste uh, directive will not kick in. They may only kick in when the site is abandoned, and that could be significant uh, period in time. So you can see there are these, these uncertainties and these slight gaps that emerge where you've used legislation from one industry and technique and moved it over. And whilst broadly it fits, you've got these little gaps um, that need to be addressed. Now, more broadly, I think uh, we're going to hear some more about climate change. But in the UK, we do supposedly have binding climate change targets. So our 80% reduction uh, compared to 1990 levels by 2050. And the question does have to be asked, if we're developing a new fossil fuel industry, can we really hit that target? One of the other things relates to environmental liability. So should any pollution or any damage occur at any of the sites, at the moment there's no strict liability. So what that means is that if an incident occurs, there is a requirement that you're going to have to show negligence or fault in order to attribute liability for that. So in the US, this has been really problematic because as we heard earlier, there's been virtually no baseline monitoring. So when there were reports of pollution or incidents, there was no data to compare it to, so there was no way of attributing that liability. Right, so this is why I said the infrastructure groundwater monitoring is really an important change. What we need to see is more baseline monitoring of other elements, such as air. Um, but this groundwater monitoring is a significant change to try and hopefully not only monitor water, but also address this issue of liability should it arise. 
The other thing that you need to have a think about as well is UK regulatory authorities. So there's absolutely no doubt that our environmental regulators have significant experience in conventional oil and gas regulation. However, although a very similar industry, we are using new techniques and we're using it at a different scale. So it's not just a question of asking whether they have the technical capacity to regulate this. There is also the question of do they have the resources? So as I'm sure many of you are aware, there have been quite significant cutbacks at both the Environment Agency and the Health and Safety Executive. So that is something um, that does need to be, to be brought to light. The final thing that I want to flag up is that whilst in the UK we've maintained this stance of current regulation is adequate, we don't need to do anything, the EU has taken a very different approach. So back in 2014, the EU were looking at whether they should take action on shale gas. And they considered doing a number of things. So the first thing they considered doing was issuing guidance, um, which would essentially help the member states to implement the current law and to try to minimise the gaps that were present. They also thought about amending each directive individually to try and counter those gaps. And then they thought about bringing in sort of a broad overarching directive on shale gas. Now, what was really interesting was that in their assessment, the EU actually acknowledged the regulatory coverage is not comprehensive. There are gaps and uncertainties and these need to be addressed. So it's, it's a very different stance to the UK. What the EU ended up doing was bringing in a recommendation. So that is essentially guidance to try and help the member states implement the law. Um, at the time, there was quite a lot of lobbying from countries such as the UK who did not want to see new regulation. So regulation is often portrayed as enemy of the industry um, in that it requires more expense, um, it delays. Um, and given that the industry here is at such an early stage of development, there is a feeling that more regulation is not going to be beneficial to that development. This recommendation is up for review this year. So again, dependent on the outcome later this month, it may be that the EU does decide to take further action if they're not happy that member states have adequately addressed the gaps through the use of the recommendation. So overall, the broad picture is that we have a well-developed base of controls from the conventional oil and gas sector. Okay, and, th and that shouldn't be underestimated. But just because that broad base of controls is there, it doesn't mean we should ignore the fact that actually there are some uncertainties and there are some gaps in its application. Um, and that needs to be not only acknowledged, but it needs to be addressed. And I think the divergence between the way the EU and the UK have approached this is really important in considering that. Um, having said that, we have seen some regulatory changes. They have been very slow but there has been some progress in trying to address some of the key areas of concern. What's important now is that we don't just set back and say, the regulation is now fine. We need to constantly review this regulation and if necessary, reform it, given that this is such a, a baby industry in the UK. As it develops, should it need to change, we need to ensure that that review and reform uh, is a constant process. If we're going to meet that proviso of robust regulatory system, which is going to ensure that environment and health are adequately protected in the UK. Thank you very much.